Welcome to I Spin On Your Podcast, a monthly podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror, cult, and subversive cinema with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are returning back to our roots with our favorite series, um, both for Kelly and I and for a lot of people, which is our Origins of Horror episodes. And so in this episode, we'll be doing part one of our look at the history of horror in the 1960s, with part two coming up in a few months. We will not make you guys wait a whole year for that. (laughs) But to kick us off, we are looking at the drastic change the horror genre underwent with the rise of proto-slashers in the films like Peeping Tom and Psycho, and also the birth of gore and splatter with the film blood feast so pick your poison and listen on if you dare we all go a little mad sometimes haven't you okay so i'm happy to be back i like you said i love this series because it helps me explore more horror because who doesn't love watching horror movies You know, I do. So when it comes to 1960s horror, to be honest, it often doesn't really stand out to me. Like there are some hits overall for me, but it's not the most memorable. I always feel like I need to search, oh, what's 1960s horror movies to remember what came out besides the big hitters, which we'll talk about today. Essentially, sorry, in the early 60s anyways, because we're kind of dividing this up chronologically. Part two will be like later 60s horror with like Night of the Living Dead, bum, 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 and international horror. But again, I mean, when I look through the, again, a very big, big list, list of 1960s horror movies. There's a lot I haven't seen. Of course, we can't watch everything, sadly, but there's also not a lot that super interests me. So that's why it's nice to do these episodes because it kind of forces me to explore, to discover. Unfortunately, in the past month, which is why we kind of bump this episode, I have been unwell really for an entire Mm. month. But I was happy and surprised with the amount that I was able to watch outside of the movies for the podcast. But what I will say about 1960s horror is I think this opinion will change. And once we get deeper into part two with international horror, because what this research so far has shown me is that I think where, generally speaking, horror lies in the 1960s, where it really shines is internationally and less so in North America. Oh, I will completely agree with you because <laughs> when I I tend to really like 1960s horror and I didn't and I didn't really you realize do. that until I started yeah. looking at lists like you said of like horror films from the 1960s wow. and half the list I'm like seen seen it seen it seen it seen it and I'm like oh shit nice. I, that is where it tends yeah. to go for me and I love international horror from the 1960s especially Japan so I'm like so looking mm-hmm. forward because there's a bunch of films mm-hmm. then that I've watched that I really enjoy so I, it's a great time like and I didn't even like realize some of the things that were born out of horror in the 1960s like Mm -hmm. for me I was really excited to do this episode because when you approached me and we're like yeah let's do proto slashers I'm like well that makes sense Psycho was a formative film for a lot of for the horror genre but then you're like let's talk about the birth of splatter and I was like I didn't even realize that yes. A, that was a subgenre, and B, that it started in the 1960s. So this was really excited for me this month mm-hmm. because as I've been getting into more cult and exploitation film, some of these directors, like H.G. Mm-hmm. Lewis, like cross boundaries. They started their directing elsewhere in exploitation field, and then they moved into horror, mm-hmm. and then, you know, back yeah. and forth. So I'm like, that was, I thought back that was like forth. really yeah. super interesting. And Peeping yeah. Tom has always been a film on my list to finally watch, so I was like super happy to watch mm-hmm. this for this episode. So, 
yeah, I, I realized that because like also too when I look back at when I was first like watching like early horror films and stuff like that yeah. a lot of the early horror yeah. films I realized I was watching was Roger Corman films with Vincent Price yes. House of Usher, Usher yeah. Pit and yeah. the Pendulum yeah. the Edgar Allan Poe stories of like you know like yeah. all those box sets that you yep. got me had a lot of films from yes. that area that's so true era. so I was like <laughs> that makes so much more sense now why I tend to really like these films <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it wasn't always yeah. strictly like black and white films. Yeah, the 60s, the, for sure. That's great. So since you seem to be such a massive fan of 1960s horror, so what draws you to it? What do you like so much about it? Oh, well, I like... So it was interesting doing the research in this because I like a lot of the supernatural stories. Clearly, like I did, mm-hmm. um, especially yes. when I first started watching a lot of horror films, supernatural genre is what drew me into horror because I like ghost stories. I like those tales yes. and like the haunting was one that I saw in like Edgar Allan Poe stories you know Pit in the Pendulum House of Usher like those old classic stories of uh, family betrayals and old secrets and all that that was like really coming out um, especially in international cinema but then I Mm -hmm. also really like the psychological elements of horror that is, mm-hmm. like, clear in all the films that I tend to watch. I like films that address, you know, things that go on with the human mind and people and society. And so, and I feel like, and we'll talk about this more when we get into the history of horror in the 1960s, that psychological element starts really coming out and then getting it combined with, like, the supernatural element. I'm just like, yeah, that's much jam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it definitely is. I would say, if you think internationally, all of the decade of 1960s, there's a lot of diversity and And I think this is where horror really hit its stride for the diversity because essentially 1960s, horror is now an international phenomenon. You go through the list of this decade, like all country, most countries are on board. We're seeing so much from Japan. We're seeing Italy come into the fold, right? With Giallo, Mario Bava, part two, folks, part two. But it's becoming so interesting and diverse. So, I mean, I think it's, a very interesting time is very exciting time and for me personally uh, one of my favorite things it, it was the birth of the splatter film because I love gore so that's you know a big standout to me anything that you perhaps dislike from like 1960s as a decade of horror Honestly, no. Like, maybe sometimes run times, like, it could be a little bit, like, boring. Like, sometimes I may find myself start looking at my phone. Um, but it really depends. But honestly, right. not really. Especially yeah. when I watch international. Um, I love, obviously, with the Japanese horror films from the 60s, I yeah, gotta watch the subtitles to understand what's going on. So, no, there isn't really anything I dislike. I would say, I mean, like I said, it's, there's just not a lot through these through the decade that really interests me but again that might change Mm -hmm. once I delve more into international horror and look more to other countries from North America because looking at the North American I mean Canada's barely even on the map we made one movie in 1960 The Mask which I hope to watch I hope to find that but maybe I find it to be a weak decade or I just need to watch more but again I watch what interests me so I think I just need to continue exploring but overall I don't know there's just not a lot that's really has really hit me strongly like in previous decades so far um but i am excited to to get into part two and look more into international horror and see what's going on but even today which i didn't realize we're going to talk a little bit of international horror because like i said i think that's where horror was the most interesting overall and now some tragic local news we have a report of another murder tonight A young girl has been found dead in Rogers Park. The body was badly mutilated. 
Because of these murders, police request that all women stay inside their homes after dark. If you must go out, please have someone accompany you. Keep your door locked. So are we ready to get into some, just some key historical events that were happening in, the, in North America in the 1960s? Yeah, let's get into some American history as we continue on with our Know Your Roots. We kind of start with this because America was big on horror since the OG times. So I understand that. So yes, America. Where was America at in the 1960s, Jess, our history buff? <laughs> get us, start us off. <laughs> so are my time to shine. I like to give you guys mm-hmm. all a little mini history lesson. Well, <laughs> kind of gravitated and pulled out things that were really big historical moments that happened in in the U.S. and North America in the 1960s that really impacted a lot of things that are happening. You know, we still have the Cold War happening, but it's all focused on the politics between the Americans and the in the USSR with and also like the space race. So the Cold War was still happening. You've got JFK who's coming in as president and who was looking to make a lot of reforms to eliminate a lot of the injustice and inequality that was happening in the United States. At the same time, too, we while he was president, we also had the the Cuban Missile Crisis, which almost brought about the another world war. And there was also the Bay of Pigs situation, which was the U.S. attempt to overthrow Fidel Castro, which was these huge invasions that turned into pretty big disasters and unfortunately led to the assassination of Kennedy in 1964. So the 1960s was a very tumultuous time. Like I said, you got the Cold War, but then you've also got the Vietnam War, which is also a full-scale war that was happening. Um, it was starting under JFK and was carried on under Johnson and while he was trying to end the war of poverty within uh, America and, and continue the changes of equality and reform, unfortunately the war expenses of the Vietnam War was taking over and they couldn't really do the things that, that he wanted to do within the states and then at the same time too the draft came and we all know about the draft and this was a time where they were drafting all eligible young men to become American soldiers to be sent over to fight in the Viet Cong but what ended up doing is dividing the the nation. You get people who are protesting, you get people who are men fleeing to Canada to avoid a draft, which leads us into the radical 1960s. So a lot of wars happening, but then we get the radicalism of the 60s. Like you said, Jess, this was another decade torn apart by war and people are pissed. The radical 60s, we call it, it's called that because the slow, slow of reform, we all know that like social change moves at a snail's pace. And it's frustrating. It's petitions and peaceful protesting can only go so far. People are mad. They hate the war. They oppose the war. You know, like you said, Jess, changes for even African-Americans seemed promising. It was not. Any of these laws that were put into place did not solve really the true problems that were facing uh, African-Americans. It didn't eliminate racism, obviously. Poverty was still a massive, massive problem. It didn't improve any conditions in these urban neighborhoods. There was some changes happening for women, for sure. But again, overall, people were sick of the oppression and they hit the streets. Protesters started to become militant because they are not being heard. They're not being taken seriously. Our marginalized people, women, they kind of had enough like it was kind of like enough is enough or lack of a better word and so in the 1960s again was supposed to be this golden age of America was not kind of a failing country at this time it was you know rife with opposition and again things were still very scary and ugly and dark and again the legacy of the 1960s in America anyways again is mixed it there was some 
empowerment. There were some changes, but it was also very polarizing. There was some resentment and like harshness and a lot of harsh criticism of what happened during the, the 60s, but also some liberation. But either way, it was a really kind of tumultuous time mm-hmm. again for America. And when it comes to our horror, I feel like too, things were very, very different. And I think that's why you need to look at previous decades of horror, which there was some kind of like consistency. Mm-hmm. This is where things start splintering off. We get, and then again, I mean, horror is an international phenomenon now. And of course, I'm not going to go into the, you know, the history of every single country that was involved. But the 60s, of course, were defined by cultural revolution and all these really dramatic, big, violent things were happening. Horror movies as always, as we've been here since the beginning of this series, help us process the changes and then sometimes reflecting our anxieties about the change in our, quote, traditional values. Yeah, exactly. When you've got students and going out there and they're riding on the streets and having these massive, like, anti-war demonstrations, this is the rise of counterculture. So people are Mm -hmm. pushing back. People were moving away from the politics because the politics weren't doing anything. And it was now time for the rise of the hippies, the free love movement, but also people were becoming more militant. Yes, during Mm -hmm. the civil rights movement, you had a charismatically like Martin Luther King fighting for civil rights and more nonviolent demonstrations. But then over time, you know, when things weren't changing and things wasn't happening enough and the protests were still happening up against them, you end up unfortunately getting the assassinations of very popular leftist politicians, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. and Bobby Kennedy, who are all trying to make these reforms and changes with America that the horror genre would reflect. All that uncertainty, the generational gap, right? Because you got to remember too, a lot of these students coming out, a lot of these people, a lot of the films that horror films are marketing to were people around the age of 18 and older. Like these are young, a Mm -hmm. younger generation now who was living in a very tumultuous time cultural revolution and dramatic events constantly always happening so these films had to reflect that time as well also but it's also interesting when we look at 1960s horror films because there's two different types of films that are happening like you said Kelly films that are serving as cautionary tales about abandoning traditional values and then you get the relaxation of censorship which now is allowing people and people part of this counter revolution to debunk ideas around taboos and incorporate more sex and violence onto the screen to reflect what is really happening in the world to deal with the issues mm-hmm. of this ever-changing world it's no longer the enemy outside of them like you know in the in the 50s it was all about the nuclear war it was all about aliens coming to get them external threats are coming gone it's now to look inward inside our own country and focus on this social uh, psyche traditions stereotypes prohibitions everything's being challenged and people yeah. are struggling for sure. I mean, you still have, you look at a master list of 1960s horror, you still have some of our monster movies, our Draculas, our Frankenstein, werewolves. You still have, we still have like fun, playful horror. Yeah. But the other side, and this is when it starts happening, movies we'll talk about today and later on and ongoing is they get dark, they get mm-hmm. gritty, they get violent, they get like scary in the sense of, yes. This is more like human on human violence, darker themes. Like you said, that that relaxing of censorship and any kind of policing of cinema, ooh, that opened the world up for, you know, kind of horror as we know it now, uh, being super subversive, very interesting, yep. transgressing a lot of boundaries and taboos. Uh, those teens from the 50s, they're growing up. 
So they don't want those like fun little kind of kitschy mm-hmm. people in suits, monster movies and madness. They want something relatable. They want realistic horror. I mean, that's I mean, people always think it's funny when people say, oh, horror is a comfort genre for me. But you can witness the horrors from the safety and comfort of your own home. So they wanted more believable horror. You know, we had all these very like, ooh, lurid and you know, kind of, quote, scandalous posters, but then you watch the movies and they're really not that scandalous. You're not being scandalized by that kind of stuff. But now you are. So we don't want any more rubber suits. Guess what? The aliens didn't come. There wasn't a nuclear holocaust. It's time for human villains to shine. And that's what I think what makes the 1960s horror really interesting because we do bring in that, like, more human element, which can be more effective for some. And I like it a lot. Yeah, and I really like how in the 1960s horrors, like, you get this, like, re-rise in, like, supernatural ghost stories, but yet the ghost stories are still simple enough to scare the audience, but it's not about, you know, is the ghost real or not? It's more about the journey of the protagonist, if they're insane or not. Is it it sanity or psychosis? What is going on? And you'll really recognize in a lot of these, like, supernatural horror films from the 1960s, often this happens to female characters. Hello, gaslighting. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, watching Mm -hmm. The Hunting now, you know, and 2023 as an older woman be like wow they are gaslighting her so much in this film yeah but it's like this pre these films are they're not just like supernatural in the sense like ooh, there's a ghost going around it's like oh but it's like having more of a commentary of what's changing what is changing for women you know you know there's this idea of like warning women to behave a certain way or they'll suffer certain consequences you know like or like protagonists are becoming the final sacrifice of the ghost like if they don't you know adhere to the ways or if they fall into that madness i also like to that this is also when horror gets a little cheeky because you get mm-hmm. the rise of the independence that coming out mm-hmm. with like Roger Corman coming out with yep. all of his like yep. horror movies like you know it's the start of him as a director writer producer and he's mm-hmm. like made like an independent filmmaker who had films that combined horror sex and laughter and it gave the audience mm-hmm. what they wanted boob blood and monsters and they're all B yeah. movies this he started <laughs> out in the 60s and yes. it just it was yeah. really interesting and then eventually you'll get hammer horror which we'll talk about in the part too a little bit about the UK yes, space horror yeah. over there where yeah. they're rehashing classic monsters but they're sexy there's a touch of eroticism <laughs> they're x-rated adult films the sexy yes. Christopher yeah. Lee as Dracula <laughs> like, yeah exactly things are interesting they're changing like I said we still have some fun movies like the birds let's say but we're getting dark bleak we're getting violent overall we we are having you know the sadist which I watched internationally like Blood and Black Lace we've got Repulsion Rosemary's Baby Mm. Night of the Living Dead overall like it was pretty interesting but you know I liked in in our research like the class of 1960s so horror (laughs) movies in the 1960s again like I said they turned a corner. Mm-hmm. There was a, this was a turning point. 1960 as its year was a turning point. That was a big year for horror. Like I said, it's darker, it's grittier, more visceral kind of horror to bring us into this new decade that again was rife with like, God, violence in the streets, violence, so much violence in our media, mm-hmm. on the news. It was wild and You know, some two films, which we'll talk about, get into now, were 
kind of, again, that turning point that kind of hit the ground running, Psycho and Peeping Tom. Similar movies in a lot of ways, but then very different in a lot of other ways, but paved the way for 1960s to be more violent, subversive, nihilistic, Mm -hmm. dark, again, bleak. The bleakness, nastier, as nasty as 1960s can be, but they got nasty. Yeah, so getting into the proto-slashers, what I love about this, and when we did some research, one of the articles talked about talked a lot about the aesthetic distance. And I remember yes. making a note yep. in my notes being like, yeah. fuck the aesthetic distance. This yes. time, horror movies yep. in the 1960s were no longer about shielding the audience from what was unpleasant or yes. upsetting. It is like, you are watching this, you are a part of this. You know, and I also mm-hmm. love that at the same time, too, while we're having the reducing of, like, the hates code has gone away, mm-hmm. this whole studio system is broken, we're now getting filmmakers coming in for over from Europe. And when mm-hmm. they're and with them, they were bringing more interesting stories and more social issues to the horror genre, and they were able to focus more on the human killer and this is where American cinema end up getting a little bit more violent because they've mm-hmm. got some stuff to deal with they've got things yeah. they have to deal with such as like voyeurism because of the idea of the American paranoia that was bred mm-hmm. during the post-McCarthy era the Red Scare era and then you also see in this genre and and actually a very important element to proto slashers unfortunately but it is seen as the exploitation of the trauma of women you know, mm-hmm. we see a lot of that sort of happening in these films. So these are these dark realities that exist within uh, Hollywood and society that people have to go into. So when we get into proto slashers, there were a couple films that were talked about like earlier on, but they never really grabbed um, the audience's attention because I don't think at the time people in 1927, you know, were ready for a film like The Cat and the Canary, which was a silent horror film that was adapted by a stage play by John Willard, which was essentially about an eccentric millionaire who forces air to stay the night at his mansion and remain sane till the end of the night to get the money. That also sounds like, um, fuck that Vincent Price film. House on Haunted Hill. It started the convention of setting up serial killers or a slasher or the killer to be a masked attacker that terrorizes people and then I'm like, okay, well that is an element of slasher films. You know, you get the film in 1942, The Leopard Man, which is all about a film where a leopard gets loose from a circus and mauls a teen girl and, but it creates fear in a town where a serial killer actually exists and is killing people and takes advantage of the fact that this other kills are happening. So this adds this other element to the slasher genre, which, which is like stalking sequences, and you know, we're getting character development and plotting. So, we're like, okay, so we're like little pieces are coming into these films, but really, the, the tradition of slasher films would come out with torture killers driven by revenge, some sort of psychotic compulsion, or painful childhoods. And we see these in the two films that we're going to talk about now Peeping Tom and Psycho. I have to say, I did not know that. Alfred Hitchcock and Michael Powell were British. So essentially, the birth of this, the proto-slashers came from international waters. And I did not know that. Yeah, because Peeping Tom is a film that was in the UK, got released in the UK. So we understand that. And we know that Psycho was in the US. But yes, Hitchcock, British. <laughs> yes, didn't know that. Frankly, I don't know that much about either one of these filmmakers. Uh, Psycho is the only Hitchcock film I've ever seen, so I didn't realize they were British. So that's interesting that really, again, international horror making waves, early 60s, more so, I think, than America, generally speaking, in the sense of we're here to talk about influence Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and understanding our roots and, you know, like you said, Jess, there's those couple of little moments, but subgenres become subgenres for a reason. They start somewhere. They blend 
as I think lot like so many horror movies do, they blend subgenres, but there are those the DNA, not the yeah. word I'm looking for. The DNA is found and you build upon it, you build upon it till we get to the tropes that we know today and love or hate, whatever. Well, like the Italian giallo. Exactly. I mean, you know, I can't wait to talk about that. But again, very inspirational. But these movies, as we know, and particularly Psycho, had a big impact. But one I think should have had more impact, and I'm really sorry it didn't, mm-hmm. because it is a fascinating, interesting movie. We're first going to start talking about Peeping Tom. Sergeant, I've been on the force 30 odd years, and I've never seen such fear on anyone's face as on this girl's. What was it she saw? Mark, are you crazy? Yes. Do you think they'll notice? Is that job from upstairs? Did you read about that girl that was murdered last night? Same thing nearly happened to me. Oh, when? Last night. How long is it since you've gone out without that? Without what? That camera. You belong there. I feel as if I know him. Now, darling. It's here. say doing research on this movie as brief as we're doing it today is really interesting and I feel like maybe deserves a deeper look sometime Jess um would you be down for that I would (laughs) totally be down for that because yeah I was when I this was a first time watch for me and I was like super exciting excited because I I had heard a lot about it and how people talked about Mm -hmm. it so when I got to actually watch it I was like ooh, this is speaking to me is also right up my alley with what I'm dealing with in my life currently right now so it's just kind of like yeah this this speaks to me but it's a really good film and I'm surprised that it received Mm -hmm. as much scorn as it did when it first came out in the 60s and this film was released a couple months before Psycho yeah so it's just like they're like head to head yeah but they do not at all have the same reputation I guess you could say like everybody knows Psycho. They do, but very few know Peeping Tom and Mm -hmm. like, I think this movie is beautiful. I think it's interesting. It definitely gets way less attention than Psycho for no good reason, I would say. I mean, I personally like it less. I find it a little less engaging, but in my opinion, it does parallel with Psycho. I think it deserves similar recognition in its ingenuity and perhaps maybe it's almost like the first found footage horror movie or at least the movie to add elements of found footage horror, right? Yeah. So we even have the sprinklings of DNA to another beloved subgenre of horror. Well, I think this film was ahead of its time in with the mm-hmm. rise of, with the way it depicted violence, but also yep. the exploration of deviant desires and psychosis, childhood yeah. trauma, yeah. abuse. Yeah. Like this is you yeah. know one of the rides I like this film because it got into deeper, darker territory and it explored yeah. it more, and and, and yeah. that's why like. 
I think this film was ahead of its time in the 1960s. I I don't think people were really ready for that to be (laughs) shown in this scandalized people like more so than Psycho. Like Psycho definitely scandalized. This was too much clutching pearls like this was too violent too sexual they're showing us sex workers and just it was too much for people too much yeah and then it was unfortunate that it it led to a curtailing of uh, michael powell's career he was the director of the film yeah um due due to the accusations of moral degeneracy that that was accompanying the film but thank goodness that we had there was always like a handful of loyal admirers um (laughs) people out there thank you like because people did that for nosferatu as well if we if it wasn't for people being like this is amazing we need to hold this we wouldn't have this film so it's wonderful that that film was end up saving and then martin scorsese found got a copy of this film and brought it uh, brought the print to a screening event in New York Film Festival which like got the revival of its you know, mm-hmm. you know love out again and people started to be like actually this film is kind of a bit of a masterpiece because it's a really interesting film about voyeurism and making yeah. people yeah. uncomfortable it's fucking with the aesthetic distance it's bringing mm-hmm. people becoming active accomplices to the murders of these are happening and this is always something that slasher genre fans struggle with mm-hmm. we struggle with this like yeah idea of loving a slasher movie but you're watching these kills and you're identifying with the killer and we're just like ooh why what we this is uncomfortable we just watched Ghostface like gut someone this is not good <laughs> yeah in Peeping Tom we often see the world through Mark the protagonist's eyes protagonist and slash villain quote and like he's he's the director of this movie but then also there's a director but then we're also watching it and we're watching it through his eyes there's all these different like layers and nuances mm-hmm. to it but then it's like is this the OG POV shot, like our point of view shot, that again becomes a classic feature of the slasher movie and of the slasher. So that is interesting. And again, know your roots, folks, but this plays with the voyeurism. It takes it to a darker place, way more so than than Psycho does. Much more sinister. It it even brings up uh, when we've talked about this, going back probably when we talked about the Italian horror, but scopophilia, which is like the love of looking, seeking pleasure from looking at a person or a subject. It became popular uh, later on when we talk about the male gaze, which is the term coined by Laura Mulvey. But in the movie, they even say like, Mark's dad was working on a quote movie and his experiments but he's like this is what makes turns people into peeping toms is watching other people do things the name is the movie is peeping toms which i thought was interesting Oh, it's such an interesting twist because as you're watching this story unfold and we, uh, as the audience, we're seeing Mark commit these murders and we figure it out and we're like, oh, wow, this is like super, you know, sadistic and deranged that he's even handing the police officers the weapon, the murder weapon, when he's like, yeah. oh, it's just my camera. And I'm like, oh, my God, they're literally yep. holding the murder weapon. But like, he's this. Yep. But you discover his story and you learn yes. about what, how, you know, he's just the victim of trauma and childhood abuse because yep. of his own father, a psychology professor who was spending his whole life filming, filming his son's waking moments to study the effect of fear. But then it's mm-hmm. interesting how we learn about that. And then when Mark talks to these, the other psychology professor, he's like, oh no, I, his father, I, his, he was like studying voyeurism and about peeping toms. And then all of a sudden it's mm-hmm. like, oh, was he studying Mark because he thought Mark was a peeping tom? and there's something mentally wrong with Mark or did his father turn him into a peeping Tom by constantly filming him all the time and that's how Mark thinks you've engaged with people by watching them all the time. Yes. Well, there's even, if you remember, it's a short scene, but there is a scene. So Mark's father, who is filming him all the time, films him 
as a child looking through and looking at other people. Yes. So exactly. there's like boom, 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 all these like layers upon layers. And it's, it is really interesting. But, you know, coming back to this is a proto slasher. We have harmful parents. Parents have the causing harm, causing abuse, causing trauma to children, but makes them grow up and turn into psycho killers and our slasher villain. We see this also in Psycho, where, again, Norman Bates kind of resurrects his abusive mother. Mark becomes his father. So it's really, again, they kind of parallel. They're really interesting. Talking about the, you know, proto-slashers, Mark, before he kills somebody, he has his camera ready, but unsheaths a substitute phallus. In other slashers, it's the knife. In Psycho, it's a knife. We They're achieving actual penetration with these objects. And that is a classic later on formed slasher trope. The phallic weapon used by the killer, but then also taken by our iconic final girl to kill the villain. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're seeing, again, the DNA being sprinkled through these movies. It's interesting because how slasher films create, like they can show us both They sometimes start us off with just showing us the killer themselves. And then over time, we learn about how that killer became to become that person. With these films, with the proto-slashers, it's combined into ones. We're always seeing the origin stories of these people, but somehow it ends. Like, they stop. And it's like, okay, well, by the it's like a complete story. They will no longer hurt this individual anymore. Because, like, you know, spoiler alert, where we think that there's going to be a final girl in this film, mm-hmm. there isn't. Mark ends up taking his own life because he realizes that his father essentially groomed him to be a killer, and he'll always mm-hmm. be a danger to whoever. So there's no... Like, he discovers there is no cure for him. He just... So mm-hmm. he decides to take his own life. But you do get the element of there's potential of a final girl because you see we see that these uh, killers their compulsions are brought on by women and as always Mm -hmm. women are the subjects of their psychosis or what break or brings them to that point of no return and that's why they must kill to have some sense of control in their world and their environment and that becomes a big thing in you know slasher films the constant victimization of women yeah the virgin versus horror dichotomy of slashers Yep. Yeah. It starts here, folks. It starts here with these two movies. And it's the unfortunate, also older, you know, the origins of slashers. It's, you know, it still happens now in contemporary slashers. Less so. We've grown, evolved, but we're looking at the the origins of these subgenres that we love so much that have become so popular and that um, are just massive in the horror genre. So Peeping Tom is definitely one, I think, that folks should take more note of. There's a lot of elements here that are really important to the slasher genre. And I really liked how in Peeping Tom, it reminds me a lot of like an exploitation film just because it goes in and explores dark things that people may not necessarily been aware about, underground things. So it was really interesting that Mark moonlighted both, like worked in a studio, film studio and did photographs, but also moonlighted doing, you know, dirty photos, like doing like Mm -hmm. taking a provocative photo photos, nudie photos of sex workers Mm -hmm. and then selling them out under these general stories and that was a thing in the 1960s. Like if anyone knows Mm -hmm. like the history of Betty Page and stuff like that, that's how 
how she got started was doing these like you know seductive fetish photos that got sold to older men and so we saw that in we see that in pb tom we see this kind of underbelly seedy world that the world is not necessarily perfect or beautiful and mm-hmm. i really appreciate that as well um yeah. so that's why i can understand this film would had that such a reaction at the time that the critics would scorn it and be like this is too much too ahead of your time we, we can't handle this <laughs> They weren't ready for it. And I I wrote down some quotes from this uh, movie reviewer from 1960 when this movie came out and a couple of things. She was like, Peep Tom is the sickest and filthiest film I can remember seeing. She also said, what are we coming to? What sort of people are we in this country to make or see or to seem to want so that it gets made a film like this? She was just like absolutely horrified and very upset that this movie was even made. And so we here we are seeing people wanting to censor yep. art and censor expression and police film because it made you uncomfortable. And again, I think you're right, Jess, that this, it, it I think it was very much ahead of its time. It was a bit more disturbing than Psycho. It had a lot more like psycho yeah. sexual elements, deviant sexuality, like the great points about like the porn aspect of this. Because that was still very taboo. We're not playing with that. So it it just went a little further. Yeah. And so I really also respect and appreciate that for for what it is. And so, uh, yeah, I was glad to revisit uh, Peeping Tom because it deserves some recognition. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Should we move on to Psycho? Yeah. So let's get into Psycho. Here we have a quiet little motel. When in fact, it has now become known as the scene of the crime. You have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12 vacancies. You know, this is the first place it looks like it's hiding from the world. I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. Is anyone at home? Oh, that, that, uh, that must be my mother. Is anything wrong? Am I acting as if there's something wrong? She's not missing so much as she's run away. Put me down. Mother, oh God, mother! What are you running away from? She looked like a wrong one to you. It's not as if she were a a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. This for me, I've seen this a couple times before. So I've, I think the very first time I ever watched this film was on a moving day when I moved into my own apartment for the first time. Ooh. So 
That's exciting. I think I remember that. Actually, I think you, I remember you telling me that uh, that you've seen it. Like, I own this movie. It uh, Psycho has been in my life for many years. I've seen it a good number of times. I mean, it's classic. It's oh, historic. Yeah. It's iconic. You know, the score, the performances, the cinematography are top notch. I think it's truly a memorable film. Mm-hmm. So whenever I think of 1960s horror, I'm always like, boom, Psycho, obviously. But also I think, boom, Peeping Tom. But every time I rewatch Psycho, I am reminded about how much I love it because I really do. It is one hell of a movie. So with Psycho, it actually premiered June 16th, uh, 1960, a couple months after Peeping Tom. Mm. And it was unfortunate that Peeping Tom received so much scorn and uh, Psycho received so much praise because, mm-hmm. and we have to admit, and like Kelly and I literally just said, we've both seen Psycho. It's like an influ- influential film yes. for all horror, uh, all fans of the horror genre. Because yeah. it was a game changer for the horror cinema. Yes. They did. The, yep. Alfred Hitchcock did a lot of firsts in this film that just shocked the Hollywood system. And I always love the fact that it was the first Hollywood film to boast a scene of a flushing toilet. It just blows my mind. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, that is so true. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> oh, those simpler times. Right? That was such a big deal. How dare you? Seen a woman a... in a bra? Oh yes, Whoa. yes. Marion Crane in her brazier uh-huh. for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, know, this, it, you know, the of the most violent, you know, shower scene, you know, mm-hmm. kill like very right? violent. Everything, yeah. yeah. Psycho just literally caught everyone by surprise, and literally yes. it took traditional norms of morality and just slashed all the way through it, and just said, "Fuck mm-hmm. the moral curtain. We're we're gonna make you mm-hmm. have to look at yourselves." <laughs> yes, it. Uh, I think a part of what makes psycho so memorable but also influential but different is that it is it brought to the cinema aesthetic violence like this is a very pretty movie there's a lot of you know details to cinematography like I said to shots there's incredible shot work in this like obviously I mean again I said I have not seen anything else by Hitchcock and that's nothing against Hitchcock it just hasn't happened organically yet (laughs) but I mean he's a renowned filmmaker for a reason Mm -hmm. I get that I can just tell through through Psycho but you know all of these the tropes and the cliches of horror slides that we know now they didn't know in 1960 so yes this movie is going to catch them by surprise and was this massive turning point we have this excellent screenplay written by joseph stefano again the cinematography the technical aspects of this movie is pretty stellar i mean i like peeping tom a lot but we don't have as much of that technicality of filmmaking put into it I think the acting and the performances in this is exceptional. It's so, so good. But again, the dying production code, this was a new beginning. And I I remember reading that Hitchcock was like, okay, there's a bunch of these movies that are rivaling mine and maybe doing better than my movies. So I'm going to make my own kind of gritty, low budget movie to rival these other movies. But it's like scandalous, but also mainstream. And I, I do appreciate and again, super respect that it brought that to to cinema. Yeah, because like he took a risk on that because like with the screenplay being based by the book by yeah. Robert Block of the same name, yeah. he, like totally. Paramount at the time refused to finance the film. They're like, nope. So Hitchcock was like, fine, I'll do this on my own. I'll put my own money forward and stuff like yeah. that. And like the producers were not happy about yeah. it. 
but he ends up doing it and ends up making like grossing 15 million on this film alone because like you said Kelly this film is considered mm-hmm. an experimental film because a lot like one of the articles mm-hmm. that we read talked about how this film is really a film for filmmakers and I could see it now especially rewatching it again and seeing mm-hmm. the combination of yeah. soundtrack photography technique lighting yeah. positioning yeah. like yeah. Alfred Hitchcock mm-hmm. like he cared less about the subject matter and about the acting in the film what he cared about was how his film was technically going to scare audiences from the beginning like and he was and it really does like I said there's mm-hmm. a point in mm-hmm. the film where you see the way the, the film is angled where um, Norman is talking to Marion and you see a, an owl and he's talking about his mother but the way yeah. the camera's positioned the owl and it makes you feel like his mother is watching him uh, through the owl and I was mm. like oh mm-hmm. I could see how this film would just shock audiences to see it for the first time, um, especially like mm-hmm. we we're um, especially because like not only like which Hiscock um, a great filmmaker, he was also amazing pr- marketing and promotional genius. Like mm-hmm. he was the one who went mm-hmm. out there and was like, and this will come up later again when we talk about H.G. Lewis, some similarities. But he was out there being like, no late emissions policy for my film. You need to come see it from the very beginning to the end. No one was allowed to talk about them this movie hello Blair Witch Project like he was able to build that <laughs> suspense around the film that yeah. helped to add to the technical technical suspension that he brings in and also he breaks rules which mm-hmm. shocked audiences as well like having us care for a character like Mirian and then to have her killed mm-hmm. off like halfway through and, yep. you're, and you're like what yep. Yep. <laughs> she's supposed to live exactly yeah, and Janet Lee. I mean, we've got all of these big name actors at the time being in this experimental kind of risky movie, giving again fantastic, exceptional performances. But yeah, we kill Marion Crane. Wowzers! Hey, remember in Scream when we killed that very likable, famous actress in the first ten minutes mm-hmm. of the movie? <laughs> it still blows yeah. our minds today. Like we couldn't even believe we did that in 1996 with Scream, but here we are with a. We thought we didn't even know what a final girl was then. We're like, but maybe she's gonna be it. No. Yeah. So I mean, these proto slashers played with that. We didn't have that kind of thing until our the 70s. We get our mm-hmm. true our true blue kind of final girl. So they played around with that. But I feel like in these movies again even though we like the women Helen in in P.P. Tom was very likable as well Mm -hmm. I'm glad she lives she was very sweet she was very kind yeah um but and these early ones and that we see further on and throughout all of slasher history is that our killers are the main event Norman Bates iconic Anthony Perkins incredible performance as this you know charismatic empathetic yet creepy engaging character. Again, I think he does better than, unfortunately, I didn't write down the name of the actor who plays Mark in Peeping Tom, but like Anthony Perkins, like, holy moly, what a presence in that entire movie. Rewatching Psycho this time, uh, it had been a number of years, but that parlor scene with him and Marion is just so incredible yeah. and engaging. Their chemistry is also pretty fantastic. It is so good. And it's just, yeah, it's kind of sad that she dies, but uh, we wouldn't have psycho as it is with without somebody dying and what's really nice uh anthony perkins playing norman Bates. he was playing a character so opposite for what he was always famous for and we had watched yes, um, yes. in one of the documentaries they talked about how he as an individual was like the all-american good-looking boy and like these yes. you know to yeah. all of a sudden come on like to a, a film. he was a heartthrob yeah. and then to all yeah. of a sudden come on to be this like 
weird, creepy mama's boy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what's happening? Yeah. yeah. But again, our Norman Bates is that tradition of, you know, our poor traumatized children turned into psycho killers. They have pain, painful childhoods. They're, they have this compulsion to kill this neurotic loner. But in this one, he takes on the personality again of his mother, who he had killed earlier and keeps her corpse in his house. That is level of psychosis that we, again, had not seen thus far. This movie definitely has a lower body count than Peeping Tom. Marion Crane and that P.I. are the only people that die within yeah. the, the runtime of, of Psycho. You know, slashers later on, it's bloodbath. Yeah. <laughs> killing as many people as possible, but it does have a lower body count. But the, the you know, the bodies that are, you know, the people that are killed really count. They, they did. really count. It did, yeah. Because <laughs> you, you weren't expecting their, their kills. Or, yeah. like, I really like how we just show Miriam as, like, this questionable character with when she steals the money and stuff like that. And then she becomes yes. a character you have sympathy for because she wants to return the money in the end. Yes. And Norman ends up, ends up kill- well, Norman and his mother end up killing her. And yeah. that, and what, but then, like, you also had sympathy for Norman for a bit. And then all of a sudden you don't yeah. have sympathy anymore because he's killed her. And you're like, what's happening? Yeah. Messing with our expectations. Yes, exactly. And, you know, Marion was seen as a, quote, sinful kind of character, sinful woman, which is, again, going back to that, like, virgin whore dichotomy that we see in slashers and that carried on. But then she's kind of redeemed. She wants to redeem herself. She's like, you know what? This conversation, you know what? I'm, we talked about everybody being in their own trap. You can get yourself out of a trap. And she wanted to. (sighs) But unfortunately, the disassociative kind of personality, multiple personality kind of situation. The mental illness that Norman Bates has, unfortunately, takes her life. So she doesn't get to redeem herself. So in the end, everybody still thinks she's kind of a bad person, but they don't really know. So it is, she. they give her a lot of screen time and a lot of story and character development, even though it was only about 40 minutes that she was in it. Okay, so any other 1960s films you watch this month or in the last few weeks? Like I said, I I've watched a lot of 1960s films, 1960s so. horror. Yeah. Not only this yes. month, but over the last couple years. So, like this month, I watched The Haunting. I watched Witchfinder General again. Those are films I enjoy. Rosemary's Baby, Carnival mm. Souls, and then there's like House of Usher and The Pit and the Pendulum. But mm-hmm. ones that I recommend that I that I didn't get to watch this month, but I think people should watch them as well. And uh, Witchfinder General will be on that recommendation list again twice. Is Eyes Without a Face, which is a mm-hmm. uh, film from France that is really great. There's also uh, Spider Baby Vi, which is an international mm-hmm. film. So watch that for when we go into international horror, but Black Sunday, Psychomania, Blood and Black Lace, and Dementia 13. Nice. I'm not going to go back into what I have seen. It's not a massive list, but what I watched for 1960s Horror Month, I rewatched Black Sunday because I do really like that movie. We have an episode on it, so we won't be touching on it again, but Rewatch Black Sunday. I rewatch Mask of the Red Death. What a beautiful, beautiful movie. So I, I recommend that one. Two movies that I watched for the very first time was Carnival of Souls and The Sadist. Both of those movies came kind of highly recommended through, you know, different lists.
lists of top tier 1960s horror. I didn't love them. They didn't really stand out to me. Um, the Sadist kind of reminded me of Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker that came out in the 50s. And I I prefer that one. Um, that one stuck with me more. So I would say it wasn't a very successful month of watching. I'm hoping part two and that kind of extra double exploration brings me some more things that I really like. But overall, you know, the rewatches were more fun than the first time watches. Fair enough. All right. Are you ready to educate us all on the birth of <laughs> gore and splatter? She wanted to leave. She was scared. Everything happened so fast. What do you mean? You were going to graduate from high school this June. I made her dress a white dress. So uh, full disclosure, I was like you, extra excited to talk about uh, splatter films, H.G. Lewis, Blood Feast, and yeah, the birth of a genre that I adore so much. And also people don't talk about it as much as like slasher movies, the proto slashers in those previous movies is again, as much as I love them. And that was really great. And they are very uh, influential and important. This was like extra fun for me. This was really what I was into. So what's a splatter film? What are the characteristics? Again, every subgenre has those like key foundational elements that make the subgenre what it is. There's lots of blood, more viscera. It's more visceral. There's mutilations of the human body, destruction of the human body, more realistic deaths, lots of practical effects. Essentially, they're graphic and gratuitous. Yes. And the term splatter cinema was actually coined by legendary George A. Romero to describe his own film, Dawn of the Dead. But the term splatter movie was actually really popularized in 1981 with the book Splatter Movies, Breaking the Last Taboo, a critical survey of the wildly demented subgenre of the horror film that is changing the face of film realism forever. That is a subtitle and that is a long one. But that's where kind of the origins of the name and the subgenre, what it consists of. It's super fun. It's the red stuff, folks. <laughs> it's the red <laughs> stuff. It's the gore. And we all know that as horror fans, we all have a different concept of what gore is. But at the end of the day, splatter films and, and films filled with lots of gore, they're there to shock the audience. That is what this is all about. It's all about displaying imagery of blood, flesh and bones, even cannibalism to show the vulnerability of the human body in graphic mm-hmm. dismemberment. And it's mm-hmm. supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. If you're feeling uncomfortable watching something happen on screen, the filmmaker did exactly what they were supposed to do. Exactly. And the splatter film has roots in the Grand Rignol Theatre, which shocked audiences way back then in the 1900s, showing gore and violence and blood and viscera. And people love that. You eat it up. Come on. It makes you uncomfortable, but it, and it disturbs you. But yet you like it. You like the, the being scandalized. Technically, apparently, the very first film to include gore was 1916's Intolerance, which showed two on-screen decapitations. Whoa. Whoa. Uh, a spear going through a, sho- a shoulder and some wounds that had blood. So it was showing a little bit more realistic mutilations of 
the human body. So we jump into, there's so many decades without this kind of <laughs> mutilation <laughs> until the 1960s, which is a pretty big jump, but we're ready for it. And there was a movie that I was not able to find time to watch, but I definitely, it's on top of my list mm. for, for next time. But it comes from Japan. And Jess, you've watched it. Yes, I have. I have watched it. It is great. It's, you can see where the birth of Japanese uh, splatter and gore starts to come from. So definitely worth yeah. the watch. It's very supernatural, but that's what amps up the, the effects of it. And that is Jigoku, and that's from 1960. It is available on YouTube, folks, if you want to see what was considered at the time a very explicitly violent movie. It shows graphic imagery of torment in mm-hmm, hell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was like, yes, there's flame, there's dismemberment. And so, again, it'll be 1960s, so, you know, manage your expectations, <laughs> but... I'm fascinated and need to watch it because I like origins of stuff. That's why we're here, but especially a genre that I love so much. Splatter came into its own as a very unique and distinct subgenre of horror in 1963 and throughout the 60s because of the films of Herschel Gordon Lewis or H.G. Lewis for short in the United States. So for me, I'm just like, what was making waves in early 60s and overall in the 60s with American horror? It was gore. It was splatter films. And you know what? I'm happy for that. Oh, yeah. These films coming out, these would have been considered exploitation films in the exploitation genre. You know that. We're here for that. Because Mm -hmm. H.D. Lewis his career started out in making nudie cutie films. These are sex mm-hmm. comedies that uh, pioneered, le- they were less form of innocent, these called films that are roughies, which are part of the exploitation genre, which they're often misogynistic films, but it's the nudie cuties and, you know, soft, soft, kind of softcore pornography, stuff like that. And that's mm-hmm. where H.G. Lewis found himself first. But then when he got bored, when him and his friend uh, Friedman were like, okay, this genre the, of the nudie cuties is like bloated there's way too many people here we can't get ourselves known we can't make the money because i love hg lewis reading his like interviews and stuff like that and he's like i did it for the money yeah (laughs) i I did it for the money (laughs) yep that's it straight up we want to make money let's turn a profit because he had the cheapest movies of all time (laughs) so he's like we put so him and friedman put their Mm -hmm. heads together and like what could they make that was cheap and that no studio and no place could ever do that hasn't been done before gore, Mm -hmm. splatter, Mm -hmm. showing the audience what they don't get to see. We can't see the knives penetrating, but that doesn't mean we can't see the effects later. We can't see the eviscera and the bloody parts everywhere. And it's cheap to make, and people will pay to see it. And again, censors? Right? (laughs) That wasn't a thing. We We already talked about that. It wasn't really a thing then, so they really could. Like, the... MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, had yet to form. Catholic Legion of Decency was losing its influence. Like the religious folks that were really mad about horror movies, more like morally corrupting our youth. Nobody cared. People were caring less. There were no censors. Nobody's policing this. No legal president. There was nothing going on. So nothing to judge them. No regulations for gore because there wasn't gore before. How could you even police it for something you have nothing you've you've never seen before? Mm. So this was groundbreaking. And you know, H. G. Lewis, I said that he makes cheap movies. Shoestring budget was yep. essentially the coined <laughs> term here because 
He did all the writing, directing, producing, composed the music himself. So he cut costs. He cut corners everywhere that he possibly could to make a profit. And a profit he did have. And that's why he continued throughout the 60s to make not just gory splatter films, other exploitation movies, the origins of exploitation mm-hmm, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But it was incredible. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to witness some scenes from the next attraction to play this theater. This picture, truly one of the most unusual ever filmed, contains scenes which under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily upset. We urgently recommend that if you are such a person or the parent of a young or impressionable child now in attendance, that you and the child leave the auditorium for the next 90 seconds. Blood Feast, the movie that we're talking about today, is part of what's called the Blood Trilogy. There's Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs, and Color Me Blood Red. Um, So it's really great. Watch that trilogy. Highly recommend. But talking about marketing, H.G. Lewis came from a marketing background. So if you look at all these wonderful posters of really all of his movies, but for Blood Feast, it was very loud. It made claims that like nothing was going to be more upsetting and appalling and gross and gory than Blood Feast which was accurate because in 1963, when Blood Feast came out, we did not have these types of movies. On its release, they really, they gave out barf bags. Yes. Man, people even still need that for certain horror movies yep. these days. But reminding the audience, like, you're going to see something that is going to rattle you to the core. And again, it might make you want to vomit because it was gross. There's some really gross, wonderful 1963 element <laughs> level of expectations of, of gore in it. So it was pretty groundbreaking. Yeah, it was an untapped market. And he's like, I'm going to tap this well of Mm -hmm. what people want to see and (laughs) let's show it to you. And because, like you said, the advertising background, he knew how to save money and he knew how to bring an audience in. His movies poor quality there be movies with like super poor lighting weird sound effects flimsy as hell plots you know terrible dialogue like just everything but you want to see how it turns out and you want to see the blood and the gore and you get to see it in full color that's a big Mm -hmm. change because yes yes, in psycho while we saw the violent shower scene we you know we kind of see a bit of a knife penetration but the blood is you know is black and white so it doesn't really have that effect on you but in, in a herschel gordon lewis film you've got bright red blood everywhere yeah and it pops it pops pops off the screen (laughs) and he just he just knew how to make that market and because he was already in that industry and because he's already working exploitation films you work with what you have and every and you often Mm -hmm. have a lot of the same actors in the same film i watch one of his films i'm like wait i reckon that guy's from blood feast <laughs> the, yeah, the recycling of actors. Absolutely. You're like, oh, you had fun in this movie. Why don't you uh, make it another one in six months from now? Want to be on it? Yeah, sure. Great. You know, and you can pay them a little bit more cheaply. You're going to have a good time. But um, they're sleazy. They're exploitative. Absolutely. Exploitation movies. This is not psycho. Blood Feast is not psycho. These movies are not psycho. They're not even peeping Tom. Side note, Blood Feast was shot in six days in Miami. It only cost $24,500. Psycho had a budget of $800,000. That's a cheap movie, man. And that's for the influence that it had throughout horror history. 
is pretty incredible. Let's see. It influenced Night of the Living Dead makeup. Tom Savini, Stuart Gordon, who did Reanimator. John Carpenter praises Blood Feast, specifically commends Lewis for wanting to slap us in the face. This is a quote and say, look at this stuff. Look at it. It's in your face. Trash cinema legend and king John Waters pays tribute to Blood Feast in his movie Serial Mom, super fun movie, and also dedicated a chapter of his book called Shock Value, a tasteful book about bad taste to Lewis and even Russ Myers. Blood Feast is even referenced in Diablo Cody's script for Juno in the scene where the title character swaps obscure horror references with Jason Bateman's Dario Argento-loving surrogate dad. So it's, it's had its run and throughout horror history. And again, the red stuff showing that, I mean, 70s, we kind <laughs> of, it's, it kind of scales back a little it bit. Kind of, and then yeah. we know in the 80s, boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. We're back in with, can't wait to get there, but getting into the blood, the guts, the gore, going to the excess yeah. because splatter films are all about excess, which I love. If you have seen Tokyo Gore Police, <laughs> um, <laughs> There's a lot of blood. I was going to say, well, that's what the money went to, right? Like, yeah. whatever money they had, they could save on the money. They put it towards the yep. effects and the and the and the creating the gore and stuff like that because they knew that's what people were going to see. And so that's usually why yes. performances by the actors were very stiff and there was like yeah, bare minimum plot. It's like not the point. It's not the point. <laughs> there's like you know, but there's naked women and there's attempts yep. at comedy. Like it's it's just fucking weird sometimes. But it yep. was like this answer to people who enjoyed horror movies, but yeah, wanted to have something a little bit more gory or a little bit more realistic. Also, I thought that was a really interesting point that is also believed to be the oldest film on the video nasties. People yeah. believe that uh, Lewis yeah. not only created the splatter, torture, and gore genre, but also served as an inspiration for video nasties. Mm. So you have to remember, when you think of this too, like this genre also inspired our, you know, later on torture porn and stuff like that. Like these are all elements that carry it into this film later, but you go, go back and it goes back to H.D. Lewis and Blood Feast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this very mm-hmm. simple plot of a trope of like dumb blondes, karmic death and this artifact of doom like this weird tale of a Egyptian worshipper Ramses Fuad who is sacrificing women to the goddess Ishtar for the blood feast (laughs) for the blood feast (laughs) and and then just like you know silly white Americans just go with it they're just like okay let's do this this doesn't seem weird at at all (laughs) yeah (laughs) so the opening scene of blood feast is very shocking it's very taboo we have the death of the woman in the bathtub we have nudity there's he chops off a leg there's blood everywhere dismemberment again like you said Jess we couldn't actually see any penetration of the objects but oh boy do we see that deliciously gross hideous aftermath of it's like mixtures of like gelatin actual awful like the later on the tongue kill which is very much ingrained in a lot of people's mm-hmm. mind is a rotting sheep's tongue like that was around for a while and disgusting but in that opening scene and what I love and I find this in Peeping Tom too like the colors are so vibrant yes in Blood Feast there's so many like of the primary colors blues reds greens gold sorry gold on a primary color but it's like all very like basic colors but everything just stand, everything pops everything stands out so that red yeah which will go on to see also in a lot of like giallo that like paint red color <laughs> blood not the most realistic in that regard but it pops and that's really the main thing because we didn't see that before this is 
very, very shocking. There's blood everywhere. Again, not as stylistically done as Psycho. Again, this isn't Psycho. This was made on $5, but it was revolutionary at the time because we were not getting the red stuff. Medically accurate, you'd chop off something, there's gonna be blood everywhere. And that shower scene in Psycho, there'd be way more blood if you've stabbed somebody eight times. A lot more blood. blood. Um, (laughs) Also, eviscera. You're seeing body parts. You're like, you walk into Fuad's when the police walk into his worship area in the back of his little general store. (laughs) How does nobody smell that? How does no one smell that? And how does no, like, you know, I can imagine the kid just accidentally wandering in there and just seeing, like, dismembered women. Like, it's just a curtain. It's just a curtain, yeah. (laughs) But you walk in and there's there's dismembered women. Like, there's, like, you know, pieces of body parts. Obviously not real, hopefully. But, you know, but, like, it makes it look enough that, you know, as an audience in the 1960s, this would be exciting and new to see because, you know, on the mainstream cinema, we're seeing, yeah, more violence on the screen but the blood is or tastefully hidden away or it's in black and white so it doesn't really shock the audience because we know people would be having heart attacks i guess in their in their Mm -hmm. chairs to see that but you know in an hg lewis film you got all that Mm -hmm. you got the stabbing you've got the head sawing you got the dismemberment you see the guts you see people pulling things out of their eyes you know the tongue scene Mm -hmm. everything Yep, you see it all. Like, even in Peeping Tom that does have a higher body count than Psycho, there's a lot of off-screen deaths. You don't really see a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Like, little bits of blood. Like, when he even stabs himself, you don't really see it. It's more just, it's assumed that it's gone in and now his hand's covering where the wound would be. So it's, as much as, again... I keep saying scandalized because that was the era. But as much of, of a kerfuffle that Peeping Tom made, it was not as gratuitous as this movie was. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, I applaud H.G. Lewis for, for creating this and, again, tapping into the subconsciousness of the, this is America, the American folks that needed they needed this. We wanted this. We They wanted to see this kind of like fun, schlocky, kind of sleazy, violent movie. There, there was fun, but also disturbing. And let's add in the sexy element with just the random, yep. you know, five, ten minute scene of beautiful young women playing in a pool, you know, sitting in the yeah. bathing suit. You're like, well, you know, his mm-hmm. background is the nudie cutie. So, you know, just add a little yeah. sex also sells. Sex, gore, mm-hmm. violence, it all sells. Yeah. Oh, blood uh, feast. Yes. It was so fantastic. I've seen that movie a few times now. Yeah, this is my second time watching it, too. That's fine. Because I know it was relatively recently yeah. that you even watched it. Yeah, yeah, I watched it in January when I did my video nasties uh, day. Oh, there you go. And that was, like, the first one. So I was like, because I watched uh, one of his other exploitation films called Something Weird. And so mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I know right. who H.G. Lewis is. So, yeah. Cool. Okay, so what other H.G. Lewis movies have you seen then? So I watched uh, 2000 Maniacs yeah. and Taste of Blood where the two that I got done so far. I really still want to see Gore Gore Girls and Wizard of mm-hmm. Gore, um, but I wanted yeah. to stick with his uh, 60s films. So uh, mm-hmm. Taste of Blood was super fucking boring, but it's like, right. I think I called it uh, Dracula if it was like Family Feud or something like oh, that. Yeah. It was just really weird. Um, and But I, I like 2000 Maniacs. I think that was a good one. I feel mm. like that film was just made just to show off some like interesting kills. But I, I was I was entertained. I was there for it. Yes. Um, I have the H.G. Lewis like this like big kind of like master pack I guess you could say of like a box set. Again, I was infirmed for most of May. um, So I didn't watch more, but I definitely intend to. Like I do, I mean, not all of his movies hit for me and they're not always the most engaging. But again, I I respect the filmmaker so much and there's so much more that I want to to see. 
So I watched 2000 Maniacs for the first time and then Color Me Blood Red because I wanted to finish off the trilogy. Ah. So at least then yeah. I would have that. So I watched the 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 trilogy, which I was really glad for because um, I did really like 2000 Maniacs. I did really like Color Me Blood Red. Do you recommend those? All very different movies. Again, the, the exploitation element of 2000 Maniacs and, and that kind of like supernatural element. Yeah. I was not. I wasn't expecting that. I was not expecting it, and I was I was pleasantly surprised. I'm like, okay, yeah. sure, let's sure let's do this. Yeah, That's yeah. fine. Yeah, exactly. I'm here for the gore and a good time. So, <laughs> and I had it. <laughs> That's all that matters. So, after like having this conversation, talking to these three films, what do we think are the most important films for this time, or more influential? I would say for me, again, looking at the early 60s, so from 1960 to 1965, because we're going to do like the latter half and international horror next time, I would say Psycho and Blood Feast. Okay. Way less horror fans know and appreciate the origins and influence that the splatter films of H.G. Lewis had on their favorite genre, which is horror. And so I really implore people to check them out. Again, know your roots. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Psycho, we talked about it, but it's, I mean, it's kind of obvious and that makes sense. And I totally respect and appreciate Psycho for what it has done because I do, it's a movie that I love and I think it is quite incredible. So I'd say from this time, Psycho and Blood Feast. Mm, Okay. Yeah, I have a hard time just saying just one or the other because I feel like each one of them brings something to the horror genre that was unique. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I really enjoyed Peeping Tom. I think I like it a little bit better than Psycho yeah. because it's deviant. There's a sense of exploitation to it. It's a disturbing t- tale. And it was like, I feel like it's ahead of yeah. its time. I feel like this would be like, if this could be remade and made into a really disturbing extreme drama or something like that, that would be super mm-hmm. interesting. But I would be remiss to be like, and not say that Psycho was not an important film yeah. for the horror genre. Because it just it, is. It is. It, it just is. violence it is. to the mainstream. It brought yeah. film techniques to help build suspense. It kind of helped to mm-hmm. change how people started doing cinema. And of course, that classic mm-hmm. score. You, you're like, yeah. you're going to hear yeah. it. You think of Psycho or you think of Reanimator or Charles Band. And then just you get into this whole, like, it just brings you into yeah. the whole horror world. And yeah. Blood Feast. We got gore and we got it in color enough said mm-hmm. like you started mm-hmm. something that will also continue to influence other genres splatter we gore torture you know and even mm-hmm. the slasher genre will eventually be influenced mm-hmm. by the splatter genre mm-hmm. because like you said the 80s slasher and splatter came together and just blood everywhere <laughs> <laughs> So I think they're all really great films. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're Spencer's, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or with a good book. Absolutely. With a mug of delicious, hot tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more, but what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. All right, so I love when we do these Know Your Roots episodes because it really satisfies the history student in me who gets like so, I get to nerd out about this stuff and get to situate some really important horror movies in the context of which they were developed in you know 
I love the horror genre and I love seeing what society was preoccupied with at the time because we know that horror is political and a lot of major world and social events were influencing films at these times. Like we talked about these fun films, but a lot of these films were in reaction to the changing world, the psych- the psychology and mental health, voyeurism, how women were being treated, how color was, you know, how people of color were being treated. And we'll talk about that later on when we get into part two of this. And so I just love being able to get to learn more about the history behind some of these beloved horror films and talk about them and the more obscure ones and to get to discover new films and directors and see how they continue to influence a genre. I always just knew that the slasher genre were the films of the 80s and 90s, like, you know, Scream, Friday the 13th, Halloween. But when I learned more about the history of the subgenre and how it's evolved from these proto-slashers like Psycho and Peeping Tom, it was really interesting to see where these elements come from. And then, you know, we go from seeing the killer's face to having mass killers, psychological elements to supernatural and back to the psychological. And then just learning about the history of splatter and gore films. Well, like, this is like a new subgenre to me. This is Kelly's area, typically. And I love getting to explore it more because it really falls in line with a lot of the cult and exploitation films that I've been watching over the last two years. So it's just so much fun to watch these things and see how they evolve. So I really can look forward to continuing this discussion in the next and when we have um, part two come out in the next couple of months and we talk about you know the zombie films and we talk about international horror and how they started influencing horror genre because we also get folk horror and that comes from a lot of international horror. So I'm super excited and and it was just so much fun to talk about this. So my final thoughts consist of my ode to splatter. By the 1960s, horror had developed and did very well with, you know, haunted house movies, ghosts, the supernatural genre, monster movies filled with vampires, werewolves, aliens, and other creatures, along with psychological horror, gothic horror. But now it was time for the red stuff. The violent horror, the gore horror, upsetting horror, my favorite. A subgenre I've grown very fond of, also thanks to my work for Our Bloody Obsession. German splatter films, shot on video gore films. It's the complete destruction of the human body. And hello folks, body horror owes its origins to this as well. It's an important element of the genre that modern horror folks or younger genre fans don't understand or realize. So in Canada here, we have Rue Morgue magazine. And so that's like the Fangoria for Canada. Uh, Again, it is pretty internationally known, but that's our magazine. That's our horror publication. And for a long time, there was a section called The Gourmet. And The Gourmet was done by Andrew Bales, uh, RIP. Didn't realize he had much impact and influence on me until he died. Um, And looking back at all of the old, old issues, years and years of issues that I have of Rue Morgue. But he always focused on shot on video horror, the cult, the exploitation, the gore, the blood from all decades, extreme films. And I don't remember when it was removed, but probably within the last decade um, before he died, Rumorg removed that element of their magazine. And since then, I have always found it lacking because... Gore and blood is a critical element in the horror genre. It started in the 60s because it was time. We could do it. And from then on out, it's been very important. And folks, don't even get me started on elevated horror. The pretentious attitude that horror movies should only be psychological or, quote, highbrow to be important, powerful, or relevant. We owe our fandom to gore and our guts deserve respect. That ends part one, our exploration of the history of horror in the 1960s. 
We will come back to this topic and discuss the rise of the zombie genre and horror cinema in part two in a couple months. But until then, we want to thank Dance of the Dead for our intro to music, Kiss of the Creature, and all you listeners. You can find us at our website, spinstersofhorror.com, and on our social media, search for Spinsters of Horror, and our Facebook group, Spinsters of Horror Coven. Come join and talk horror with us. We're on Letterboxd at Horror Spinsters. We have a YouTube channel where we post all of our panels, live presentations, and mini sodes. So just look for us and subscribe to Spinsters of Horror. Jess does have a monthly horror book club, so please message us and she will send you the Discord server link. Please rate and review us on all uh, podcasting apps like iTunes, so because we can get iSpin on your podcast to more people, please. We have merch. Please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and, you know, maybe donate to us. June is National Indigenous History Month here in Canada, a time to recognize the rich history, heritage, resilience, and diversity of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. So we will be celebrating and exploring the underseen films of Indigenous horror, films created by and about Indigenous people. We will be discussing Blood Quantum from 2019 and The Dead Can't Dance from 2010. But until then, remember, the future of fear is female. 